The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Jesus began to speak in the synagogue at Nazareth. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure thyself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save. Rescue me from the grasp of the unjust and the evil. So we pray in the psalm. So the Lord promised the teenager from a priestly lineage when Jeremiah protests, I do not know how to speak. I am only a Nahar, translated boy sometimes, but all ages of a young person are involved. Perhaps we should join the prophet in protest. Rocks and fortresses, or castle in the version we chanted, seem so secure until an earthquake brings them down on the heads of a people, rich and poor alike, until some rubble that comes from those fallen stones, bricks, cement, and all the rest block the rescue and relief efforts until the rocky heights that served as a town's protection in ancient villages provides the opportunity to engage in lynching a local son. All in the synagogue were filled with rage, drove him out, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off a cliff. Of course, Jesus slips their grasp this time. But the story will end with his execution on another rocky place outside the walls of Jerusalem. The young Jeremiah, who has been handed a no-trade contract to be God's voice over nations and kingdoms, to destroy and overthrow 
to build and to plant will endure 40 years in which he will witness the bitter end of his Jerusalem as Babylonian armies tore down its walls, God's temple, that devastated the land and marched its people off to captivity. How much of this story did the young man glimpse as he tried unsuccessfully to hand the contract back to God? Some at least. He knows what happened to those earlier prophets. Phrases and images from Hosea and Isaiah of Jerusalem will inform his own speech over those 40 years. He could even have used one of the Proverbs Jesus employs. No prophet is welcomed in his home region. Our translation had hometown, but Patris is a little bit broader region than just the local town. And it is a comment that Jesus backs up with the examples of Elijah and Elisha. Jesus didn't have a very good campaign manager. That was the opinion of one of the members of our parish Tuesday morning Bible study this past week. The situation is a bit worse than that, of course. The campaign is being managed. In fact, for both Jeremiah and Jesus, they have the same campaign manager. Namely, God. Remember the passage from Isaiah that Jesus took as the platform for his ministry in the sermon, which we heard the first part of last week. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For this reason, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And for Jeremiah, the only signing bonus that he gets is to be infected with the words of the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. Now I have put my words in your mouth. Well into his ministry, we hear Jeremiah wrestling at one point with the possibility that perhaps he could just keep silent. He's had it with the frustration, with the persecution. But of course he can't. Because the word of the Lord is too strong within him and bursts out. So the story about the campaigns is that God wrote the speech. And that means no redlining backstage at the last minute. So we have to ask ourselves a question as we imagine that scene long ago in a small village synagogue in Nazareth. How does the audience get from the joy of Isaiah's stirring words, the year of the Lord's favor, it's here, it's upon you, to murderous rage? It begins, of course, with a few voices piping up in the group. And remember, in a small village in Galilee, a synagogue is just people sitting around a room. There's none of the ornamentation the elaborate Torah shrine, or the public architecture in the great 4th and 5th century synagogues. So it's skepticism based on Jesus' modest origins. Because none of those signs and promises of future greatness 
so familiar to us from the Christmas story were apparently circulating around town. They knew two very simple things about Jesus. That he was son of Joseph and a carpenter. That's it. And for someone who's about 29 years old in a population where the average life expectancy for a male is age 40, he is already a mature adult. Not merely the kid that mom and dad are hoping will finally move out. Furthermore, the population of Nazareth in the first century was about 450 people. In other words, it's a one-stop-like town, as they like to say in the Midwest. And that means that everybody knew him, and he was probably related to most of them. No one saw this coming. Except Mary, perhaps, and she was mum on the topic, pondering all these things in her heart, Luke tells us. Jesus does tell us with a bit, a bit about what he's going to say when he says to them, hearing this murmuring, that he's about to pose a parable. A parable is something of a cross between a riddle and an example story. Sometimes the lesson is plain, sometimes it's there to be figured out. When Jesus uses a parable, it is usually a challenge. It's being put up to be for their own consideration and for their own choice. So they have to either get it right or not, because in the end, the choice is theirs, not his. Isaiah is nice, they apparently think, but they'd like some miracles. That seems to be the initial irritation. And Jesus puts his finger on its cause. They happen to have heard that he healed some people at Capernaum. Now, surely, the hometown folk deserve as much, or perhaps more. After all, the standard idea of benefaction, of graciousness in ancient world expects you to pay more to those who are your own, who are your kin. It's your town. Of course, such rules are a two-way street because favors are given for favors received. So if Jesus immediately opens up with another proverb that no prophet is welcomed or accepted in his home region, he could be needling the audience a little bit. Perhaps he has not quite received the welcome that he ought to have had. And if they caught on to being needled, the tension in the room is already rising. Perhaps there is more murmuring going on. Perhaps there is a Supreme Court justice mouthing no way to the president in the background. Okay, I'll prove it, Jesus continues. And he brings up two precedents. Elijah and the widow at Zarephath in Sidon from 1 Kings 17, and Elisha and the Syrian general with leprosy from 2 Kings 5. Now his audience knew the cases. 
In the first, the Israelites had been worshipping the fertility god Baal. Allegedly a god able to provide the right weather for the crops. So once Elijah had tossed the idea of closed heavens, the Lord will do this in the face of King Ahab, he better get out of town. Staying around is not a good idea. And in fact, he was not in the territory of Israel. This widow happens to live in the home region of who else? Queen Jezebel. The story is much better than just a few little notices. She is allegedly the source of this idolatry. And throughout the Elijah narrative, the prophet's sworn and bitter enemy. Well, in that case, of course, Elijah couldn't help Israelite widows. He couldn't actually be in Israel. The idolatry at the top, the king, the queen, the rest, that is responsible for the famine God has sent and decreed in punishment, that is responsible for the desperate plight of the poor in such times, including the widow in Sidon, has made Elijah's presence in the territory of Israel impossible. Talk about no welcome. Elisha and the enemy general is an equally complex and fascinating story. Because, in fact, the Syrians had won. In fact, it's an Israelite slave girl taken as a result of that conquest who tells her master when he's stricken with this leprosy, there is a prophet in Israel who can cure you. And with the usual boneheaded idea that we saw represented by the Magi, where do you go when you're sent to a nation? The royal court. So Naaman actually went to the king. And the king panics because he thinks this is a plot to break the truce. He thinks it's a plot. They sent me this man to heal so they'll have an excuse to renew hostility. Something's never changed in the Middle East. But fortunately, he sent, he goes to Elisha, and then he almost doesn't take the advice. He almost doesn't take the healing. Because after all, the Jordan River, what's that? We've got good rivers in Syria. And he almost goes away. But another servant, so notice from below, the servant, the slave girl, another servant says, wait a minute, if the prophet had told you to do something really hard, you would have done it. So he persuades him. And Naaman washes, is cleansed, and an international crisis is averted. Thank God for regional peace. By invoking these cases, whose dynamics were certainly known to all of his audience, Jesus presents himself as an equal of these great prophets. So he's not just the wonder worker, and he's not just the local kid. Could the 
murmuring crowd in the synagogue have seen that? Or are they just murmuring more? Perhaps they could have seen it. Or should have seen it. But if they could not have seen it, then Jesus has simply baited them into anger at the presumption that he claims to be as great or greater than the two greatest prophets of that region of Israel. And perhaps, despite the drama of the story, it was just a few voices that started murmuring in the crowd, ratcheted up, put it on their Twitter sites, and before you knew it, got everything going. Well, that brings me to the final reflection on the readings the church has put before us this morning. Why do you suppose that God's prophets keep finding themselves embroiled in such toxic debates with God's people? Because that seems to be the job description. Now, a knee-jerk kind of reaction that says, well, the people are always bad and God is always good, will hardly do. And it certainly won't do for Nazareth. First century Galileans had a great respect for God's Torah. They had a great respect for God's temple. And archaeology has increasingly demonstrated how much that was so. And we can't pride ourselves in thinking that we are not as equally easily led into toxic debates. Finding ourselves drawn into destructive opposition to what God wills for us, asks us to do for ourselves, our community, our neighbors, or our world. I don't have time for the toxic debates between the Apostle Paul and the church at Corinth, because they were legion. But today's well-known celebration of love provides some suggestions or an antidote to the swirl we've just been through. First of all, he points out that we tend to look for the things that enable us to boast. And an undercurrent of many of the things we've read, some of the hymns we've already sung this morning, have said you have to give up boasting. You have to put that aside. Paul says whether it's the inspiration of prophecy or the heroic sacrifices of an apostle or martyr, they are nothing without love. I took a little bit of a census in my Tuesday morning Bible study group, and there weren't too many people that were sure that they thought of Paul as a man of love. So his ratings are down on that score, uh, at least in my parish. We also, he suggests, make another big mistake besides the boasting, the credential, put yourself up there. We make a mistake of confusing what is temporary and partial, whether it is a religious gift like prophecy or an intellectual one like knowledge, with what is actually eternal, what is certain what is grounded in God's truth. Well, that's the second reason we find ourselves embroiled in toxic debates. And the final reason, I suggest, is where Paul talks about the impossibility of self-knowledge. The polished mirrors of ancient Corinth were simply metal, 
and they gave no more than a distorted image of anyone who looked into them. So, also do we get a distorted image if, as we saw in the Gospel, the only image we take of the self is that that is reflected back at us from what others may see. Consider the image reflected back at Jesus from those folks in the synagogue. If we start filling out the picture from a burnished metal Corinthian mirror or from the many images that are shipped back toward us from our surrounding, from others, we'll come out looking like a Picasso. And maybe one of the harsher Picassos is that. So Paul suggests that we have to loosen the grip. Because the truth of the matter is that only God has the real scouting report. Nobody else can tell you this. And the truth of the matter is that we don't even know, as St. Augustine says, ourselves. Even our own heart is obscure even to ourselves. Only God has the ability to see it. Of course, St. Paul says that one day we will know ourselves. One day we will be shown the selves that God sees. Not the selves that we see, not the selves that outsiders see, not the selves that the powerful and the great or the lowly or the neighbors in the synagogue see, but the self that God sees. Or, as St. Paul puts it, then we shall see face to face, and then, and only then, I will know fully, even as I am known.